Hey, hey everyone, Tom Workus here, and welcome back to another broadcast of In the Trenches. Today's guest is Jeff Cohen, who is a senior executive at SellerLabs.com. SellerLabs is a company dedicated to helping sellers win on Amazon every day. And they do that through a suite of software tools, including Feedback Genius, which is the most used automated buyer-seller messaging program by Amazon sellers. Jeff joined the Seller Labs team as employee number seven in early 2013, initially as an advisor and then joining the company in June 2013. And since then, from 2013 to 2018, they've turned Seller Labs into a multiple million dollar business that is now featured on Inc. 5000's fastest growing private company. It actually landed in spot 148. And that's as of the time that we recorded this today. So in our interview today, when I was speaking with Jeff, that's the news just came out and they're just announcing this right now. Of course, you'll be listening to this after it's been published, but you can go check that out. And that's on the 2018 Inc. 5000 list. So it's a pretty remarkable story of bootstrapping a company from just a couple co-founders to over 53 employees and a multiple million dollar business that's continuing to scale like crazy. My number one takeaway from today's conversation was on a topic that we didn't directly address, but I think we hit it from a bunch of different sides. And I think it's fundamentally the value of your time or where is your time best spent? Where is its highest value activity? As in, where can you spend your time where it will produce the most amount of profit? And that sounds like a pretty common sense idea, but I think what's particularly interesting is hearing Jeff's story about the founding of Seller Labs, starting as a bootstrap company, where when he joined, he was engaging in forums. Even just three years ago, he was engaging in Facebook forums and trying to get people to buy his software. That now, fast forward three years later, he would never do that because he is at such a scale that adding an extra 100 customers wouldn't even register in their reporting. He's not trying to solve for the problem of getting 100 new customers, which many people who are just starting are, are trying to solve for. He's trying to solve for how do I get 10,000 new customers. And so his actions and his activities have to be geared towards achieving that result. And so I found that just an interesting perspective because I think a lot of people just take it for granted that as the project gets bigger, as the business grows, fundamentally you're solving for larger scope, bigger challenges. And the metrics, the measurement, the tool that you're measuring with becomes, we'll say, it's a bigger yardstick, so to speak. So again, the things that worked in the early days, they won't work for you in five or 10 years. And I think the key thing here is the critical idea here is not just are you spending your time where you can create the most value and are you creating the most value there, but really approaching things in their proper place and time. So if you're just bootstrapping, maybe it means going on those Facebook groups and those forums to get your first couple customers and then hitting that as hard as you can and as fast as you can. But let's say you move beyond that where you have enough paying customers every month where you can take more time to invest in things that are more scalable. Maybe then that means going to paid traffic to Google AdSense and to Facebook ads and running ads across different marketplaces. Or maybe it means pulling a different lever like affiliate marketing or strategic partnerships or tapping into a new marketing channel. The point is, in order to grow your business from where it is now to where you want it to be, you need to understand the problem itself, as in what is the growth you're shooting for and how are you measuring this? You need to have access to and understand the tools and resources you have in front of you that are at your disposal, and you need to be able to put this tool to work to solve the problem at the scale at which it exists. So I think that idea of scale is particularly important in this context. 
So I'll leave it at that and just say that this was a great interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it and get a lot out of this, whether you're trying to start a software company or even just tap into some other digital marketing strategies to grow your business. There's a lot here that you're going to learn from Jeff. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. So Jeff, I want to start with actually some of the good news you've had recently. When this show airs, this will have happened about maybe about a month ago, but right now it's kind of breaking news happening today, which is pretty exciting. I wanted you to share with the audience like where Seller Labs is at when it comes to a very special list. Yeah, so um, around the, the middle of August, right? Just in case people are listening to this in the future, of every year, Inc. Magazine puts out their fastest growing 500 and 5,000 privately held businesses. And Seller Labs is going to debut on that list in 2018 in uh, position 148. So we're like serious, uh, excited, jumping around, virtual high fives, having virtual happy hours, and super excited and pumped about it. So give some context to this because this is, uh, I have no experience in this space at all. I've seen these lists. I have no idea how they calculate who's on them how they even know what businesses to look at. But before we get maybe to some of the technical aspects and dive right in if you want to on that, but I'm also curious about Seller Labs. How long has Seller Labs existed? Like when did you found, when was it founded? And how long was this coming? Let's put it that way. Yeah, so uh, that I'll share a little bit of both, but like that's part of the challenge of the Inc. 5000. Part of the challenge of the Inc. 5000 is that you have to be a business for five years. So this is something we've been like looking forward to because we knew we were going to do well on the list. We weren't sure how well we would do. And listen, there's lots of lists and we can probably get into that in a little bit. Like, should you apply for lists and what do lists mean? And they're great little things for recruiting. They're great things for morale within your company. They're great things for kind of um, a way to show off within your industry. But I think it, it does go back to like what got us to this point. So the quick story of Stellar Labs is that Stellar Labs is really started off as sellers in the Amazon space. As sellers in the Amazon space, we were going to a USPS auction. So these were um, auctions that the United Postal Service had that were things that air quotes fell off the truck. So when your package didn't get delivered to your house, it ended up in this warehouse in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, all of the items at this warehouse were uh, resold, uh, auctioned off, uh, you know, storage wars type of activity, right? Before there was storage wars. And um, we started buying products at USPS auction. We started off really in the book business because that was our, our history was in the book business. Uh, we had had some other software in the book business, but we really started off with in the book business, buying books, buying textbooks dabbled in fine metals and jewelry. We dabbled in Legos, kind of grew it into um, a multi-million dollar operation selling on Amazon and eBay and uh, went to look for some software to help grow our business. And what we found was that the software we had created internally was actually better than the software that was being offered in the space. So in 2012, when this was all kind of occurring, there wasn't a lot of software in the Amazon third-party marketplace space. Uh, the third-party marketplace was mainly resellers. It didn't have the notoriety that it has today. It wasn't generating as much of the sales on Amazon that it was today, but it was definitely growing. And our true passion wasn't really in selling books. Our true passion was in writing code. 
And so we realized that we had this opportunity to jump into a space and make our software available for other people. So in 2013, we launched with our first application called Feedback Genius. Feedback Genius now today sends out over a million emails a day to Amazon buyers, asking them to leave product reviews and product feedback for Amazon sellers. So yeah, I mean, I jumped ahead five years <laughs> within there, but starting off of a company of uh, two founders to a company today, five years later, that has uh, 53 employees and five different software applications all in the Amazon marketplace and ecosystem. Wow. So when you, so you got started, just you and a uh, co-founder, is that right? So I was actually not a co-founder. I joined the company as employee number six or seven, but the founder actually used to work for me. And then he quit to go do another venture and then started this. And when he was getting going on this and he was really early on, so I probably joined the company in early 2013 as an advisor and then officially joined the company around June of 2013. So I was in pretty early because they were mainly on the programming software side of things and I was on the marketing promotional side of things. Got it. Okay. That gives some context. So this is pretty, okay. So this was started in 2012 and then... It went from two founders to 53 employees. And how many, how many software solutions do you guys, I guess, actively sell or had that you've built and, and people can use for, yeah. Yeah, so um, if we go to built, we're probably at like eight or nine that we're actively selling. We're at like four. So we've definitely have built, we like to tinker. That's the lab part of our name, Seller Labs. We like to tinker. So we definitely have created like little like one-off type applications. We throw them out in the marketplace. We see what the desire of the marketplace is for that application. And if it's not very strong, we move on to something else. If it is really strong, then we dive into it deeper to build it into a full-blown product, if you will. So four that are generating revenue today, but we definitely have had quite a few others that have kind of come and gone along that time. Can you share what have been one or two or if, I mean, whatever comes to mind in terms of what have been the things that have driven some of the most substantial growth over the last five years, especially to kind of like catapult you onto a list like Inks 5000, like what were the things that were, we'll say fundamental shifts, not just like incremental growth, but the big, big leaps that you guys did over the last five years? So I have two answers to that question. One, I'll, I'll give you the direct answer from the product side of things. I think that one was like right place, right time. And it's hard to time the market, but all three of our applications that have done the best, only two of which we still actively own as a company, we spun one off when our founders separated. All three of them were successful because we were first to market and we were in the market early before the market started to commoditize. And so we've built up a reputation for our knowledge of the industry, our experience in the space, our relationship with Amazon, and our ability to create good products that when we release products, our customers and the community will try what we have. And that usually puts our competitors on our tails chasing us. So Feedback Genius... Uh, was one of, if not the first feedback uh, related tools in the space. 
I guess, arguably one of the biggest in the space in terms of the number of customers that we serve. Everybody's private, so it's hard to actually claim who's number one. And I'm not just one of those marketing guys that says we're number one because I say we're number one. Our other tool is our advertising tool. We saw Amazon advertising in 2016 as a major opportunity for growth because of our relationships within Amazon. We got early access to the Amazon advertising API. We were able to release a product months before a lot of the competition got access to the same API, which allowed us to start to build a foothold and a footprint in the Amazon advertising space. But it's not necessarily about what you do to launch your product that I think makes you successful. It's what you're able to do to pivot your product of over time that's made us successful. And so it's about us looking for blue oceans within the red ocean that exists. Everybody can make a software off of an API, but we try to look for nuances within that that allow us to push our product into a, a market or an audience that isn't necessarily looking for that product. And so I heard a, a great restaurateur. I know you're from the Chicago area. There's two great restaurateurs in the Chicago area. One is called Richard Millman. The other is, uh, uh, last name is Levy. They own a group called Levy Restaurants, which you probably see in most all of the stadiums now. And then the other one is a group called Let Us Entertain You. Uh, Maggiano's is probably the one that people would know nationally. And uh, what they said was that the success of a restaurant isn't made in the preparation of the launching of the restaurant. The success of the restaurant is made in what you do in the first 21 days that the restaurant is open. That's what determines whether the restaurant will be successful. And I think that one of the things that, that we've learned in, in our growth of bootstrapping our business from zero to multiple millions of dollars is that our success is not in what we launch. It's in how we adapt to the market and how they react to what we launch. And as long as we cannot become emotional in what we do, and we can focus on what the audience and what the market is really looking for, then we'll continue to be successful. When you start to believe that your product is the right way to do it, and now you just need to educate everybody to do it the way your product works, that's when products fail. Oh man, I have so many questions come to mind right now. So I'm going to just, I'm going to start with one, see where it goes. So you brought up this idea around, well, restaurants, successful restaurants, this idea that successful restaurant isn't about the launch of that particular location, we'll say, or that space, but what happens the subsequent 21 days after the launch. And that's the idea of there being it's feedback, getting legitimate feedback from new customers, from people who are coming to your place and making adjustments over those 21 days, broadly speaking. Tell me if I have that kind of correct. And how did you specifically implement this in the software space? How did you approach that problem set? Yeah, if that was the way that I interpreted it. You know, it's always great to learn from other industries and then to apply them to your industry. We have one of the ways that we've applied that into our business is like a lot of businesses, we have business principles. So one of the principles that we really try to instill into our employees is that they will never have enough data to make a correct decision. And therefore, what they have to do is they have to take the data that they have and they have to use that data to make the best decision that is possible today. As that data changes, that might mean that we have to go back 
and change the decision that we made. And so this is, I could share this in a, in a couple of different ways. The easiest would be uh, us adapting to Amazon and their policies, right? So as a third-party software provider for Amazon, we have to adhere to Amazon's terms of service. Three years ago, part of our tool would allow you to uh, connect the review that is left with the buyer who purchased the product under the idea of customer service that if you can reach out to somebody who gives you a bad review, you can reach out to them, offer them a refund, get them a new product, provide them uh, some customer satisfaction. As some sellers started to abuse that process, they were using it to try to convert bad reviews to good. Amazon changed their policy or they didn't really change it. They enhanced their policy to make it clear that they didn't want that type of conversation occurring. And so as Amazon made that change, we had to pull that feature out of our system. And so we used the best information that we had available when we went to create that feature. But as that information changed, we changed how our business worked to adapt to the new information that we have. And I think that what happens in a lot of companies is that you get emotional in the decisions that you make. I've spent all of this time working on this product. It's not profitable, but I'm not going to stop selling it because I've put so much time and energy into it. Or I've worked so hard on this software and I have people that are using it, but it doesn't really meet the needs of the customers. So I'm going to keep trying to fix it instead of pivoting your energies and your efforts to other things. And one of the things we try to do as, a, as an executive team today is we try to look at what's our return on investment for the effort that we're making and how do we deploy our resources? Because now that we have multiple softwares, now that we have tens of thousands of customers, we're making millions of dollars, we actually have to be getting a, a bigger return on investment for what we're doing. And it's something we talked about before we hit the record button, but it's the same thing. Like things that I did in my business five years ago that would move the needle and increase my sales. If I, five years ago, if I could increase my sales by $10,000 a month, that was monumental. Today, if I increase my sales by $10,000 a month, it barely shows up on a report. And so today I have to focus on things that are going to move. I need to still move the needle. So I'm looking for things to how to add a hundred thousand dollars to my business or a million dollars to my business, not just move it to five or 10,000 to my business. And I feel like that's a fundamentally different question or a fundamentally different problem that's being solved for than like the one you were solving for previously. Even it's not just a, I think a matter of scale, but of, I really do feel like this because I see it from the outside and having, having not gone through it to that like level, that extreme from definitely having bootstrapped and gotten to a, a sizable level with my business, but not to the level you guys are at. But I feel like what you are doing is you're solving a new problem. And it's kind of almost like that. I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Thiel's zero to one, I guess, theoretical framework or his, his conceptualization of what drives innovation, what moves things forward. And he always looks for the, well, the zero to one movement, that dramatic change. I feel like you're kind of playing in that level when you're at that space and you're talking about, well, $10,000 a month would actually be would almost be a negative if like that's the only thing that showed up on the report. But for somebody who's just listening, bootstrapping, it's like 10,000 a month would be a game changer. But for you guys, it's just a totally different ballpark. It's the scale changes the game, changes the landscape, but it's more than just the scale, I think. Well, maybe you can comment on that. I love your insights. 
So I used to work for a company called MBS Textbook Exchange. They're a $500 million subsidiary. Well, now I think they're owned by Barnes & Noble College. They were a, a privately held company when I worked for them. And I worked on a project for them where we were selling books online. And they were selling two, $3 million worth of books online. And we were taking all these extra books from the warehouse, books we couldn't sell and couldn't sell online. And we were selling them out the back door. We were selling them for like pennies on the dollar. And one day the CEO of the company came up to us and he was like, I don't understand. Why are all these people literally waiting outside our door for us to put more of these boxes together to buy these books. And we're like, well, they're taking the books and they're selling them online. And they're, he's like, well, if they're selling them online, why aren't we doing that? And it's like, well, because if I took all of these books and I sold them online, I would generate at max, the value of this is a three to $5 million business. And here we are, we're running a $500 million business. To move the needle on a $500 million business, you can't add a new $5 million product line, even if it has the profitability. It's just not worth the investment. Because we were a private company, what he did was he spun that off to be a totally new business. Basically, like I'm going to sell the books to myself and then I'm going to sell them online and run my own little operation because it's a nice little small business at $5 million, but it can't be part of the bigger business. And so I was having dinner one night with uh, Clayt Mask, who's the uh, CEO of Infusionsoft. And I was asking uh, Clayt, I said, I know what struggles we've had as a business and we're under $10 million in revenue. Where are you? You know, you've raised $71 million in venture capital, right? Like what struggles do I have to get to be a $100 million business? And what he said to me, which I thought was really interesting, was he says, it's ones and threes. So it's like, one million's a hurdle, three million's a hurdle. 10 million's a hurdle, 30 million's a hurdle. And then it's like 100 million's a hurdle, 300 million's a hurdle. And as I sat back and I thought about that conversation, I looked back at like the five years of Seller Labs and I saw those same hurdles. Like the going from a totally horizontal organization to having to add vertical management to it, right? But our first layer was like an executive team and then like an execution team. But then you get to like 30 employees and all of a sudden you need to have middle managers. Now we're at the point where for our growth, we're adding like VP level managers into our organization. So there are things that like, I wouldn't have thought of hiring a VP of product three years ago when we were the size company that we were. But now that I have a VP of product working on our company, I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't I hire this person three years ago? How has the dynamic changed in that context? Because you mentioned like, here's this, maybe we take that particular case. Like, here's this position I didn't think I needed three years ago, or maybe there was no room for this particular person in this particular position right now with the company where it's at. Because of course, you know, you have to a company grows and, and it, the way you grow it or the way it, it grows naturally is there's going to be certain things that are outside of its uh, ability to have, right? To, to be able to pay or afford for certain, for certain positions and certain things like that. So, I mean, you guys, I think are bootstrapped or at least unfunded. Is that correct? So you kind of gone through like the many variations of this. So I'm particularly curious how the 
dynamic has changed now that and as you see this, as things grow, we are like, hey, here's this new position. We didn't have this position before. So it's a new position, new, new person putting that person in there. How does that change the dynamic of like the whole landscape and how you guys like function like operationally and creatively? Yeah. So um, great question. What I would say is that it's changed our culture. Like we can sit here and talk about how we don't want our culture to change and all that type of stuff, but it has, it has not changed our culture. It has evolved our culture. That's probably a much better way of, of putting it because essentially when you're a small startup, everybody has to be a generalist, right? Everybody has to do 12 jobs that they're probably only trained to do four of. They got to figure the rest of them out. As you grow to be successful, you need specialists. And so it affects you in, in a couple of ways. One, some of the generalists have a tough time fitting in to an organization and an org chart that requires specialists. And so you'll get some people who kind of fight the process of change. And then you'll get some people who really embrace the change and the change that's occurring and they just take on to it. And so like when I say like the culture's evolved, that's the culture that's evolved. Like the change culture has always been a culture at our company that we've promoted, right? Change has to occur for the business to grow. And so it's just funny because at sometimes when the change affects you personally, you don't like it. But when you see it happening to other people, you're okay with it. And so that's what's going to happen. You know, I would say if I took the VP of product, I would say that some of the people that were working in the product uh, management department prior to that, they liked the way the department was being run before. And when they left, they thought that they'd find greener pastures. And I think the people that have stuck around and have, have stuck around to watch the change occur have said, well, wait a minute, this person actually brings a higher level of understanding of what we actually need to be doing. And it's not to say that what I was doing was wrong before, but it's kind of to say that what I was doing could have been done better than I was doing it before and that I can be much more efficient and effective in what I'm doing just primarily because I have somebody who has the experience in doing it. So, I mean, we had three product managers. I think only one had had any real product management experience prior to bringing in the VP of product. Uh, today, after some turnover within the department, the VP of product who had experience being VP of product now has a team who all has had experience in being product managers in the past. And so you just, everything just levels up, right? And it's not that you want to force people out when you're leveling up, but you do have to look at people who don't want to level themselves up and ask yourself, are they now hurting your organization or are they helping the organization? And that becomes a very difficult conversation to have because you want everybody to stay with you as long as possible. But one of the things we talk about at our company is our alumni network. So I think it's pretty cool that some of our programmers have left our company to go get jobs at Google, to go get jobs at Amazon, to go get jobs at Facebook, to go get jobs at Pivotal Tracker, to go get jobs at Weebly. That's pretty cool that that's where people have stepped up after working at our company to go their next job at. So we have to be okay with the fact that good employees will move on to find better opportunities some employees just won't kind of 
cut it with the, the change that's occurred within the company. And some will, will still thrive off of that change as the change occurs. Let me ask you a question. This is kind of technical, but bringing it back to Amazon, because you, if I understand the scope of Seller Labs correctly, but maybe I'm not capturing all of it, most or all of your products are focused on, well, Amazon, or at least primarily, we'll say, or at least just looking at the ones that are focused on Amazon and help sellers and different aspects of kind of like what you're doing on Amazon. When your software is based on someone else's software, like a, a you know, kind of like a, an attachment that it makes it work better or that, that ties into some other business. How does that like impact kind of what you guys do, I guess, strategically speaking, because you're dependent on Amazon. You did mention that like, if they change something, if they update a policy, you guys have to, you know, shift directions and, and figure out how that works in your, we'll say business model. If they make like a big policy change or how that, there was a term you used that I, I really liked. It was like a description of like, how you had to like shift and move with it. So I'm, but I'm curious, like that's, I love that idea conceptually, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of make it a little more practical for me too. Cause I'm really curious about that. There's so many things that I feel like you have to account for. And I'm just wondering how you guys like approach that when you think about Amazon being tied in with them and it being kind of integral in that regard and the pros and cons of like, say building a software solution or building a company that's basis is, I guess, fundamentally or foundationally attached to another company. If that's a way to describe it, I'm probably mangling all these terms. No, I think that's fair. If you had asked me this question three years ago, I would have told you that it's our biggest fear that we have when we do our SWOT analysis. Today, I still, I mean, listen, I could, I have to say that it's still a fear, but it's not a fear that keeps me up at night anymore. And the reason why is for a couple of reasons. One, the ecosystem of ecosystems, if that makes any sense, has really grown in the last 10 years, right? So look at Shopify, BigCommerce, Infusionsoft, HubSpot. All of these companies have made uh, Salesforce, right? All of these companies have spawned this other ecosystem of companies that support that company. Right? There's HubSpot certified website designers. There's Shopify certified web designers. There's you know, Google AdWords certified SEO people. Right, There's all these ecosystems that have been built out of the ecosystems, primarily because sites like Amazon, Shopify, and Fusionsoft have created, we'll call them partner networks, app stores, where they've, they've looked at the community and they've said, there are more innovative people out there than what we can do ourselves. So as a community of millions of sellers, right? There's uh, over 2 million sellers on the Amazon third-party marketplace. That doesn't even include people who sell directly on Amazon. It represents over 50% of the sales on Amazon. Amazon cannot satisfy every one of those sellers. And so if a company like ours can be innovative in how we use Amazon's information within their rules, and regulations, we can provide a valuable service to the sellers and be part of that ecosystem. Now, in the last couple of years, Amazon has formalized these relationships a little bit more. So we've actually worked with Amazon to create what's called the Amazon Marketplace Developer Council. It's a council of ourselves and I don't know how many other software providers who work with Amazon to talk about um, what our needs are and how we need to interact with their software. We've worked with Amazon to create an Amazon app store. So within the Amazon interface for sellers, they can actually find our software. It's really funny because we're not air quote certified. 
There's no concept of that within Amazon. Actually, we're not even allowed to call ourselves Amazon partners, which I find really funny. And I'm sure people from Amazon will hear this, but it's really funny because my contacts at Amazon, their title is partner manager. So they consider us their partners, but we're not allowed to legally say that we have a partnership with Amazon. But we are part of the Marketplace Developer Council. We are featured inside the App Store. We're going to a, a conference in a couple of weeks that is designed for third-party integrators like ourselves. And so Amazon has begun to embrace this ecosystem and sees it as an integral part of how they're going to grow their business in the same way that Shopify, Salesforce, you know, Infusionsoft. I mean, Infusionsoft's another great example. Infusionsoft used to have an Infusionsoft user conference. They no longer have an Infusionsoft user conference. They only have an Infusionsoft provider conference, like network solution provider conference, where they, only, they just work with the solution providers that integrate into Infusionsoft and they help them because they know that if they're getting business and growing, Infusionsoft is getting business and growing. So the risk is not as great as it used to be, primarily because one, we've built really good relationships inside the organization. Uh, two, because they've formalized those relationships to show that this is part of the ecosystem and made that available for sellers to be able to find us through those channels. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious too, If in, when you think about this, is it ever the case where something develops from, we'll say an ecosystem or from a platform. And this is all kind of, I guess, new space in the last 20 or so years. It didn't quite exist like it does today, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. But are there any companies that start out as like a part or as an extension of ecosystem or the platform that then kind of starts to develop into a broader ecosystem where we include other apps and software and solutions and, and overtakes the original company. Is that, I know with Amazon, okay, we're not, maybe we're not going to, but I'm curious, like what's the upside to you guys when you look at this market? Where do you go? Someday we will overtake Amazon. Yes, and beat them to Mars. Yeah, I don't know where we'll overtake them. Maybe we'll just overtake them like in one little area. You know, I think that I'm sure there's examples. I'm just not aware of them. I mean, the one that comes to mind is like Pardot, right? I don't think that Pardot has overtaken Salesforce, but it's definitely become a major component of Salesforce. And it was written as a, as a third-party application that then Salesforce went and purchased. So there's definitely, I think, I'm sure there's more stories like that where you become kind of so integral to the piece that the larger organization may want you at some point in time. That's not our end goal. That's not what we see as, as, you know, we don't see our end goal as Amazon acquiring us someday. I've often said that if Amazon ever wants to acquire us, they can probably find my phone number. We're very happy to take stock from like five years ago, right? If they just want to give us some, some shares from five years ago, we can make a good deal. I think that for us, it's about building an organization that is designed to help sellers grow and build profitable businesses. And today, the marketplace by which sellers do that is on Amazon. And as that changes in the future, it's possible that we'll be adding additional marketplaces into our software. And so the software today is, is Amazon focused, but it's designed on the back end to be marketplace focused. And as marketplaces become more and more 
important to the overall ecosystem. You're starting to see Walmart expand their marketplace and Rakuten has a marketplace and eBay is a marketplace. As marketplaces become more and more prevalent in the general shopping arena, our software will expand to work with those as well. Got it. But I, I assume right now, Amazon's still the, the whale that it's like has market dominance, right? By a long shot. Yes. Yeah. We were just talking about the Pareto distribution here before we hit record. And I think that's an example of it, right? Because they are probably like 80% of the market or something like that. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about the Pareto principle, um, which I you had a great blog on. And so we were talking about it before we started recording is that like it lives within everything, right? <laughs> so Amazon is, I'm sure uh, Perry Marshall will tell me that I got this wrong, but like Amazon is the Pareto principle to the fifth power. So if you look at the 80-20 of marketplaces and then you take the 80-20 of that, the 80-20 of that, the 80-20 of that, it says that 5% of the market will generate 50% of the sales. That's like where Amazon sets, right? They're in like this like supernova category. And so I think that as you look at within the Pareto principle, I mean, it works, it works within the, the distribution of the products that you're selling online. It works within the uh, distribution of the advertising dollars that you're spending. And it works within the distribution of your time and how you make your time available to work on things. And I think that brings us back to like what we were talking about before. It's like things that I was able to, I mean, three years ago, I used to spend my day on Facebook in Facebook forums, trying to convince people to come buy my software. It's not to say that I don't hang out in Facebook anymore, but I don't have the time to be kind of going after customers one-on-one -on -one like that, like I used to be doing, because the value of my time has now increased and I need to be spending my time working on what the next marketplace is that we're going to be integrating our software into or what the next advertising function we're going to add into our software is going to be, because that just adds more to the value that we can drive the company in the future. So it's not to say that hanging out in the Facebook groups isn't still valuable and isn't still something I want to do. It's just that when I look at my 80-20 of my time distribution, I need to spend my time on the things that are going to drive the most value for my business. Right. And again, we're looking at, it's like metrics of scale here, right? I think that's actually a funny story, but it's, I mean, I love that hearing that, by the way. Because I'm sure so many people can, who are listening to this can probably say like, yeah, I've either done the Facebook thing or I'm trying to do it or that's like my one in is like try to get in these communities. And I think it's a good strategy. Like when you're bootstrapping, obviously that's where you guys started. So, oh yeah, it totally, listen, it works. I mean, if you get in there and you communicate with people and I see competitors coming up all the time that are using that strategy. And listen, man, if you've got a software that sells at 50 bucks a month and you pick up a hundred customers, that is worth your time to go to get a hundred people to start paying you 50 bucks a month and start generating $5,000. But when you're at $500,000, you can't keep doing it by trying to convince another hundred people to come on, right? You gotta, you gotta start doing display ads and you gotta start well, doing retargeting. This kind of ties into you know. that where I was saying that I feel like it's a different problem because you say, well, I have to try these other things. Well, it's because you're not trying to get a hundred new people on board, like trying to get a hundred new people on board. Maybe that would be like somewhat effective strategy though. Maybe not the best, but like you could do it, but what you couldn't get 10,000 people on board that way, or at least not quickly. No, but today I could go find a hundred influencers who all have access to a thousand people. And then that could give me my 10,000. Whereas before I was trying to go get a hundred people. 
right? So it's attacking the problem, like you shared, it's attacking the problem in a different way to try to get more scale out of it. I love it. Well, honestly, Jeff, like we could go on and on. And I, I'm bummed because I did want to get into a little bit of Amazon specifically, but I actually think this is just a great conversation for anybody who's like interested kind of in your business, what you guys are doing on the back end. For anybody who's listened to this and is actually interested in or either selling on Amazon or maybe you already have products on there, I want them to head over to your website, which is sellerlabs.com. But maybe what we'll do is we'll have you back on the show in the next few months, Jeff, where you talk about Amazon specifically and what people... Yeah, well, how about, how about we ask people, like, if they have those questions, make comments below. Like, let's, Tom, let's have them give us the feedback that, do you want to hear more about how the business grew? Or do you want to hear more about, like, what is Amazon? Is it, is it something you should consider? And I also, I love when people reach out to me on LinkedIn. I prefer LinkedIn over Facebook uh, today. But reach out to me on LinkedIn. Tell me you heard the show. Tell me that you enjoyed something about the show. Ask me a question about selling on Amazon if it's something that, that's been bugging you for years. And I'd love to you know, just have kind of chats about stuff like that. So I have an open invitation for anybody that wants to, to reach out. Check out Seller Labs at, at sellerlabs.com. Come visit me on LinkedIn. Make a connection. Shoot me a note. Don't just please, for people's sake, don't just hit connect. You don't know me. I don't know you. So connect and send me a note. Say, I heard you on the show. Makes it a lot easier for me to kind of understand who you are and, and want to connect back with you. Awesome. Well, Jeff, I really sincerely appreciate that. I want to encourage everybody listening to take them up on that offer. Reach out. I'll actually put something out through my newsletter when this goes live. As a reminder, of course, people to check out the show notes. Just go to tomworkies.com slash podcast and you'll be able to find the show notes. And then in the newsletter, I'll send out, I'll actually put that question in there and see what we get back. And then maybe I'll have people spam your uh, your LinkedIn profile. Awesome. I did that once at a trade show and I got 150 requests within like a day. So let's see if we can beat it. Okay. 150. You've got to beat it. Sounds good. Well, Jeff, hey, I just want to say thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. It was a pleasure talking. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. And that wraps up another broadcast of In the Trenches. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please do me a favor and go to tomworkis.com slash iTunes. That's T-O-M. M-O-R-K-E-S dot com slash iTunes and leave a rating and review for In the Trenches. Not only do I read and appreciate every review, but it helps spread the word of this podcast and allows me to continue to get on great guests. So thank you for your support and I'll catch you on the next broadcast of In the Trenches.